when you're on the low end of the totem pole, you work with the musicians that aren't exactly stellar. Right. So you have to fight more in the beginning of your audio engineering career than when you're famous. When you're famous, everybody plays perfect. All the mics are expensive and beautiful. The signal comes in pristine. The levels are perfect. Very little you have to do. But at the beginning, you really have to fight. things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with musician and audio engineer Greg Kusterbeck. I first met Greg in the early 90s when he played bass for the local punk group Uphill Down. Then I met Greg again when my band went in to record our first record and he was the assistant engineer working at the Glass Hand Studio in Richmond's Shaco Bottom. Since then, Greg has gone on to keep making music, most recently with his band Slugging Buddha, as well as in the project Greg and I do together, 92FU. And on the recording front, he has crafted himself a business, mixing records for punk rock bands from his Teal Wave studio at his home in Florida. It was great to catch up with Greg and pick his mind about some of the subjects that many musicians may relate to and find out how he approaches both making and recording music. Enjoy. How did you get into music? Oh, God. Uh, I started playing piano when I was six. Uh, wow. Quit doing that because it was boring. <laughs> and then um, picked up guitar when I was like 12. And everybody needed bass players. So I threw the guitar away and bought a bass and just practiced my ass off. And that was the beginning of it. I started playing shows when I was 16 on bass. And what band was that with? Oh, God. That was a long time ago. I think the first one was THC, the Horny Chickens. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. And what kind of music was that? Uh, it was experimental punk kind of stuff. We really couldn't play that well, so it was a lot of three chord stuff. Um, and I keep in touch with those guys still to this day. I mean, you got to remember we were like. 16 years old and we were playing bars my parents loved that <laughs> wow what bars did you guys play uh the one we usually played at was rick's rock on uh midlothian tur just off midlothian turnpike german school road area yeah wow. I, I don't even know if it's still open but yeah you, you know 20 of our friends would show up for a saturday matinee show that's amazing so when i met you you were playing bass from uphill down how did you progress from the horny chickens to uh, uphill down. What was that timeline like? Uh, well, I played in and out of bands. I mean, all different bands through high school. Um, and then I went to VCU and I stayed in the dorms and met a bunch of people that way and still in and out of bands. I met, um, have you ever met Kim Lichtenhaus? I think she's Kim Marino now. I don't think so. She's been in the, she's been in the scene for decades as well. Um, she introduced me to Bo Dillard, who was in Sewn Up Eyes at the time. Right. And okay. We, we hit it off, and we started uphill down, basically in my dorm room at VCU. Yeah, you guys had that crossover into playing like St. Edwards and stuff. How did that happen? Because you guys were so much older 
Seth was younger. Seth was the youngest member of the band. He was still in high school when Uphill Down formed. We played a battle of the bands at St. Edwards. And we all sat around afterwards and were like, wow, they should be doing shows here. Just to get kids, instead of having kids go downtown, just keep them on the south of the river. And um, it just all spawned out of that pretty much. I remember when there was that kind of switchover from when they stopped doing, or when when they had the Battle of the Bands thing, and then all of a sudden they were kind of having those like shows. And that was a big thing, I think, because the kids, if, if they went to Twisters or something like that, like a lot of parents weren't cool with that, like for like really young kids and stuff. So it really provided an interesting opportunity. Oh, from what I understand, it carried on for years. I don't, I, I was at the beginning of it, and then we just, you know, Seth graduated high school. We never thought about it again. But I understood, uh, understand it's carried on for a while. Yeah, I think it did. Um, yeah, uphill down. You guys were kind of like the, like one of the most visible bands in in the South Side. You know, and as a punk growing up, like I definitely like you. You guys informed a lot of what I thought I could do with a band, and a lot of what my friends thought they could do with the band so when you guys came to an end where did you go from that what did you do oh well after uphill down broke up uh i started playing drums in another band uh called tommy two fingers and the why nots we didn't do a whole lot we released a cd we played a bunch of shows but nothing really came out of it we were together for i bet 10 years. Wow. But we were just playing around. I, I had gotten out of uphill down and I was, I was actually kind of burned out because it was practice one or two times a week, every week with them. We were playing mm-hmm. shows sometimes two or three shows a week. It was a lot of work and I was looking for something that was just a little more relaxed and fun. And, and, uh, Tommy two fingers. And I got to play drums, which I had never done in a band. So the other thing I knew about you is then when, my band first started recording. You were actually working with uh, Mark Miley at his glass hand studio there, um, down in Shakabam. You were were you assisting or were you interning at that point? Or I, it's, it's kind of a funny story. My I was in college at the time, and my parents were really pissed at me because I didn't have a job. And my father just had enough. Called me up one day. He's like, "Get a job, or we're cutting you off." So uphill down, I just record. I recorded the uh, the first seven inch there. So I called up Miley. I was like, "Man, I need a job. Can you help me out?" He's like, "Yeah, come in tomorrow." And that is really how I started engineering. And he he was a good teacher. He really was. He made me read the uh, uh, recording engineer's handbook, which is a pretty thick book before I even touched the console. He quizzed me on it, too. He was like, you know, what? what's this? What's this? What do you do with this? And he was really good about teaching. And um, it got to the point where he was like, I trust you at the console. You bring a band in. You engineer it. You give the studio a cut. And you can keep the rest, whatever you charge. So I tried to to do a lot of projects that were where I knew the people didn't have a whole lot of money. So I basically just turn all the money over to Mark and you know, walk away with, with nothing but a lot of experience. How was that as a process when you were learning that? Was it something that you struggled with or did you take naturally to it? it it's, it's, I, I, st- I still learn every day engineering. Right. It's really a, it's an amazing thing. 
I was I was talking to Miley about this not last week that um you have a band come in and when you're on the low end of the totem pole you work with the musicians that aren't exactly stellar. Right. So you have to fight more in the beginning of your audio engineering career than when you're famous. When you're famous, everybody plays perfect. All the mics are expensive and beautiful. The signal comes in pristine. The levels are perfect. Very little you have to do. But at the beginning, you really have to fight. And it, it, this is why I learn every day is because I get some awful tracks. <laughs> I mean, right. awful. And to make them sound as good as possible whilst leaving my personal ideas of what it should sound like at the door and trying to listen to the band and make it what they want it to sound like. But you're really trying to get them to where they want to go. Yeah, and it's not always easy because uh, you know, I'm working with a band right now and woof, they're they're great guys and their songs are great, but there is that missing piece of how to place a microphone, how to mic a drum kit, you know, uh, what kind of mic you choose to sing through. And I'm trying to guide them through the process so ultimately they'll have better recordings in the future. So they're like self-recording and then what, what are you mixing it? And, and so you're actually trying to instruct them on how to self-record? I, I'm trying to help people out with that. I do just a lot of mixing. I don't do a whole lot of recording. Uh, I record my own stuff. But um, right. I, I don't have the facilities to do a full band where I'm at right now. So you're kind of advising them through how they can give you good tracks. Right, right, exactly. Some of the people I work with have some awesome material and know how to record, and it really is a pleasure to mix their stuff. It, it's a lot of fun. And they don't need help. You know, when you're working with younger bands, and especially... It, at the beginning of career, like you were saying, what you were discussing with Miley, yeah, it's very hard because you're usually going to get the band that maybe they don't have the talent yet or they haven't developed it yet. They don't have the equipment, which makes something of a difference too because, you know, trying to get oh, a yeah. gu good guitar sound off a of bad guitar, <laughs> like even if it's just not like intonated correctly, <laughs> like you're going to be like, why isn't it sounding right? Um but then also they haven't really learned what their thing is, maybe like what their voice is or how to easily get what they're aiming for in a studio. So you're also kind of, you know, when you're working with younger artists, you're also maybe teaching them that is, you know, here's, here's how you extract what you want from y'all as a unit with the way you write songs at those kind of levels, you're almost acting like more of a producer than just an Which engineer, I yeah? I, I try to stay away from producing. That is a skill set that I, I don't possess, at least at this point. And that's why I'm saying I'm trying to, trying to make them sound the best that they sound right now, rather than, you know, go back and record your guitar and do this to it, and then go back and go back and do the vocals over and do this to it. I take what they gave me, and I mix it for them, and I say, you know, next time you might want to try move the mic right. a little bit, move it more towards the center. And it's a learning process. I mean, like I said, they're they're mostly younger guys. When I say younger, it, it's not young kids. They're in their 20s. They, they've they been around the block a couple of times, and they've played shows and stuff. Um, but it's, it's a learning process, and you learn your entire life with this thing. I'm, I'm still learning, like I said. 
how have you seen like the money side of it change? Like as far as it being like a viable career recording, that kind of thing. Well, that's why I'm just doing mixing is because I think that a lot of people nowadays are recording themselves. Uh, and I'm sorry to say not as well as they should be. Um, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube on how to record. And I think at this point, every musician should know how to lay down tracks properly. I mean, that's just right. part of music now. Now, mixing, it's a skill that takes a lot of time to develop. you got to understand how your room sounds, how your monitors sound. And if musicians don't want to deal with that, that's where I would come in. And I see a future in that because mixing is becoming more and more complicated as the software gets more complicated. And a musician has right. to make a decision whether they want to spend their time working on their music or learning software. So, Do you tend to do most stuff in the box now, like using plugins or, or using Outboard? Or what exactly have you found works well for you to get the mixes that you are happy with? When I started mixing, I, I took a huge break from recording, and I got into it Oh about four years ago, five years ago, got got back into it. I went from basically Miley Studio with uh, analog reel-to-reel to digital. Mm -hmm. You know, I, made, I okay. made that jump over the years. And um, I immediately, when I decided to get back into it, I immediately went out and I bought some hardware compressors. I bought a couple of gates. I bought um, a multi-effects unit because that's what I knew from the studio. And I started right. mixing the way I knew how to mix. And then I started experimenting with some of the plugins because it didn't sound natural. It still sounded digital. It didn't have, I mean, I was looking for the glass hand sound because that's what I was used to. Right. And I couldn't find it, could not find it. And then I, um, I started looking into plugins. And the first thing that I found was the Universal Audio 1176. Um, which Miley had the hardware version of. And that did things to kick drum and bass guitar that I just couldn't get without buying that plugin. It really does a great job emulating the, the, the hardware version. And then I started getting into more plugins with the, uh, the channel strips. Um, I don't know. For, I guess it was right after Sound City came out. Everybody was just preaching about the Neve sound, the Neve sound. Personally, not a huge fan. I looked m more into the API and the uh, SSL emulations. And I got something going on in the box where I don't have to use my hardware, except in certain situations where I, it, it's just not not jiving right. And I know what my hardware is going to do to it. And that's when I patch it in. So I guess to answer your question, it's mostly in the box right now. Um, mm -hmm. That can always change. <laughs> How long do you think it took for you to make like what you would still consider a decent mix? That's an interesting question because like I said, I was, you know, in college working in an analog studio and I had some mixes that were awful. And by the time I left glass hand, I was doing mixes that weren't as awful. I start doing my own stuff and it was probably eight months of teaching myself 
had a mix in the box and what my room sounds like before I came up with something that I was like, this this could pass. The way I started, if people are interested in how I got back into mixing, um, there are a bunch of free sites out there that where you can download for free multi-track projects, bring them into your DAW and mix them. Musicians upload their tracks and say, here you go, mix it. And then you oh, upload wow. the mix to them, and they'll they'll comment on it, and they'll tell you what they like and what they don't like. And that is just, I mean, the, a lot of the tracks are really recorded well, so you don't have to fight so much with getting that guitar to sound like a guitar. It already does. But it, it's a great starting point. And it was it was probably eight months of that before I even talked to clients just to get my ears to where I wanted them. Then I can go out and say, hey, you know, I'm just getting into mixing. I'd be I would love to to mix a track for you for free and and get your input on it. There's a big difference between downloading tracks and uploading them and say giving me feedback versus approaching somebody and saying, "Hey, entrust me with the thing that you love most and I'm right. going to try to 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 make that something even better." You got to have some kind of confidence to go in there and do that. But um as far as getting a mix that I'm like really happy with, I would say I hate everything that I did up until yesterday because today I did a better mix than I did yesterday, and tomorrow I'll do a better mix than today. It's yeah, I thing. feel you on that. It's, it's kind of like um, they, they say that a painting is never done. The artist yeah. puts it aside. I think that's the, uh, that's the philosophy I've taken is that I could, I could battle a mix and tweak it till the day I die, and I still won't be happy with it. You just got to get to a point where you're like, you know what? Let's get this out there. Let's let other people hear it. You know, <laughs> it's funny. I was listening. My wife and I were listening to um, some early Misfits yesterday. And I looked at her and I was like, good God, this mix is terrible. But it didn't matter. The songs right. were good. And they made an impact. And they still are today. If you could capture that magic of that particular date and time and where society is and where you are personally and you put that down and you release it, if it's a good song and it's not perfect, it's still going to, it's still going to affect people. That's a crazy thing. when you're working on something like trying to, how do you step yourself back when you know you could keep tweaking on it? How do you get yourself to a point where, um, I mean, what are you looking for where you know, okay, yeah, I could probably keep making it better, but it's it's there. I look for that point where I'm killing the feel of the music. It, okay. You know, you can always get to that point where you're, well, I could take out one dB at 2K, and then you go back and you're like, and I could take back, I could take out one dB at 2.5K, and you just keep pulling out and pulling out. Go back, you know, two versions ago of the mix because it's easy now that you're in the box go back two versions ago and listen does it make it better or does it take something away from it you can think you're making it better but what you're doing is just killing it or over compressing it that's a big one just keep compressing and compressing you you end up with five compressors in a, in a chain and you step back and you're like doesn't sound better sounds worse take them all out start over like i said earlier it's it's a matter of giving the the performer not necessarily the best mix, but the best mix of their music 
how they want it captured. Yeah. It might not be the best mix, but it's the best mix to get their ideas across. If it's a newer band and they haven't maybe realized what their kind of individual sound is like, um, the studio can actually become like a place of discovery. Have you ever had something like that happen where you've been working with a group and uh, they've been like, you know what, because of your input, <laughs> they realize they need to redo this? They haven't changed the song. The structure was still the same, but they did end up going back and uh, re-recording a guitar part, re-recording some of the vocals, just because once they heard it mixed, at least in the rough form, as, a, as just the, the starting point, things came through that they couldn't hear with what their tracks were. It happened, okay. and this is, you know, this is the, the, I don't want to say the problem, but this is part of the job when you're working with younger bands, inexperienced bands, you just got to roll with it and, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to waste time in the beginning. You're going to do a mix. Somebody's going to come back and say, let's swap out the guitar. It's going to be a totally different guitar tone. You got to start over on the guitars. It happens. But it's another chance to learn something. And it gets better. I mean, you're making it better. It's not like you're redoing it for a reason because you're demanding more. But that can be frustrating. <laughs> Uh, absolutely <laughs> but you know I, you you deal with this in the beginning hopefully in the beginning and then as your skills get better or my skills get better hopefully I'm going to be working with the, the bands that have met with a producer gone over all their material and it's all set and they know where they want it to be when I get the tracks it's just a matter of polishing it up hopefully one day I'll get there but it's a battle. It's a battle. So when we we reconnected kind of at the, um, or a little bit before, but at, at, at that St. Edward's reunion show, you had told me about your plans for, you know, this, this basically just colossal project that became Slug and Buddha. I mean, you had the whole thing mapped out. And it was really ambitious, but you had it like down pat, like, was this your first solo project? Or what prompted like the the need to to make this music with Slug and Buddha? I was going through a lot of personal stuff. I had um geez. In the course of two years, my mother died, my wife's mother died, and my aunt died. There were just a lot of things going on in my head and a lot of personal stuff going on. And I was like, I need an outlet. I got to do something here. So I picked up a guitar and started writing a couple of tunes. And I found a couple people to work with. And I was like, let's just record this and see where it goes. And recorded the first EP, the first four songs. And um, I really liked the way it turned out, which really sparked my creativity. And I started writing almost every day. And, yeah, it was my first solo project. It's also the first project I've played guitar in and the first project that I've sang in. How did that feel? It was all those first. You had to have some kind of anxiety or <laughs> reservations about it. Was it difficult? <laughs> like, I mean, I just, we well, we just released the um, the thirty P Incubate, and right. um, I I had Kim Lichtenhouse or uh, Kim. 
uh, Marino, uh, produced the vocals on it. And I'm in Florida. She's in Virginia. We did it all online over the Internet in real time. And every time I went to sing a song with her online, I got nervous. So even after three EPs, I'm still getting nervous singing. But it's something I'm trying to get over. Um, Guitar, very natural for me. Don't have a problem with that. Um, I mean, shoot, I've been on stage so many times playing bass, you would think that I wouldn't have stage fright, but even in front of one person, I have trouble singing. So, One person is very personal. It might actually be easier to sing in front of a lot of people, because at that point, you're not really, you can't see their reactions, you know? But like one person, you know, that, that might be a little more weird. But I'll tell you, when, when you know, another band that me and you did was the 92F U thing that we just did. Yeah. One thing that really helped me was when I went into track, I've been tracking my own vocals for about 15 years now, like not in front of anybody. And for 92FU, I didn't have a recording set up, so my friend Evan was tracking it. And I had to go in there and sing in a way that I had not in a long time in front of this one person. And it, I think, was great because it pushed me to put more into it. Because I had this feedback. So it's like I do it, I get feedback, I do it, I get feedback. When I do it myself, I'm just sitting there being like, Eh, it sucks. Ah, that's good enough. You know, like it, 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 <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it it's very obvious. You know, because when you're judging your own self, it, it's like hard to to be like. And you know that from engineering, like where you know you'll be listening to a record and you'll get so lost in it that you just start focusing on this one thing and you like miss other things. You know, or maybe you'll miss that the song's actually done <laughs> and you're still listening to the hi hat <laughs> or something. Um, but you can do that with performance stuff. I found it was actually kind of easier, albeit a lot scarier, um, but it was easier to get good results when I had someone because I could rely on their judgment instead of mine, kind of. It was weird. I saw myself in these weird areas where um, I might not have thought something was cool myself because I had some kind of like personal, you know, it might have made me feel a little vulnerable in a way that I didn't like. But then Evan would be like, no, that's good, man. Did you find yourself doing stuff like that? Like where you're kind of like outside of maybe your own judgment, like finding the stuff you're doing that was against your judgment was actually good. Absolutely. Um, Kim really brought, uh, she brought a level to the, the release that she pushed me in ways. I didn't know I could be pushed. I'm not a singer. I, I never have been. I'm working at it. Um, but she, she would say, Instead of doing it the way you're doing it, try this. And that's really the, the job of the producer, in my opinion, is to be that, that voice that says, you know what, you're not hearing it the way I'm hearing it, and the way I'm hearing it might be better. G- at least give it a try. I think that that's a skill as well, to be able to take the criticism and take the, the suggestions and not take it personal. A lot, a lot of people protect their music so much that it could be better if you just maybe tried something you didn't even think of and somebody else had. Um, you brought up the 92FU stepping out of your comfort zone kind of thing, and it made me make the comparison between Slug and Buddha and uh, 92FU is I do Slug and Buddha. That is 
I could sit down and write a slugging Buddha song, drums, bass, guitar, and maybe a quick idea of melody in about an hour and 15 minutes from beginning to end. I mean, lay it all down. 92 FU, that's a process. That, really? That's something that I actually, oh, that's something I have to work at. That, that's more, much more intense than the slugging Buddha stuff. And both of them are fun. I'm not going to take away either, but if I come up with a riff that is too complicated for Slugging Buddha that I couldn't sing and play live, then it's going to the 92FU bin, and I'll pick it up later. And then I pick it up and then have to figure out what kind of song this weird, diminished, minor, whatever progression (laughs) is supposed to be. That's amazing, because that's exactly the way that it is for me too is like it is it is really challenging stuff because the i guess when i write for myself it like i think i just kind of like i i kind of center around chords that i know will work and you know it's it i'll actually decide a song is good if if it clicks of like oh yeah i can sing over that with this it's like here's the music and you're gonna <laughs> fucking make lyrics for it. And the, my favorite part of that is when I get the song and I'm like, there's no way I can do this because then I'm like, Oh yeah, there is. And now, now it's definitely on because you're going to learn how to do this shit right now. And like sometimes, and I always get there. Like, that's the great thing is I always get there. Like, it might take me an hour to, like, get into the thing. But, like, once I'm, once I've figured out, like, what it is I need to do, then it's just, like, bam. And so that's really cool that it's like that for you, too. Because what it, what it basically means is, like, the stuff that we're making there is better than what's easy for us. Right. So it's, like, we're that actually fucking trying like hard (laughs) (laughs) that's super cool and hopefully coming out with something that's interesting and and fun and i like it i don't know about anybody else but i i like i enjoy listening to to the the stuff that we've done wrapping up i wanted to get your thoughts kind of like on for someone that's looking to like produce their own music, be it like recording it for other people or um, recording it themselves. Um, you know, a lot of the ways that we came up through it, like the idea of like kind of taking an internship and record, working off someone or learning off someone, um, that doesn't, it's not as accessible now. It's not as, there's not as many studios to do that from. For folks that are trying to get that and like get a handle, to do it seriously, like, they, like they're either going to be, you know, being a musician and self-producing or getting into it to be an engineer on the other side of it. What do you think is the most valuable way for them to learn? Like given this like current landscape of opportunities for learning. In my opinion, there's two things that you have to do. One is get on YouTube and take advantage of every tutorial and every free class out there. And The second thing is do it. Get an audio interface. They're not expensive. Get a a DAW. They're not expensive. And start playing around. Take what you learned from the videos and apply it to your computer. And it's, it's, 
it's a learning process. You're not going to master it overnight. It takes time, but the rewards are infinite. Once you can record your own music, the whole world opens up. This has been Various Things. I want to thank Greg for taking time to talk with me. You can check out his latest music at Slugging Buddha or with 92FU by checking them out on most streaming platforms. And you can check out his mixing services by following the links in the text accompanying this podcast. For more episodes of this podcast, check out VariousThingsPodcast.com. I'm Gary Lama. Thanks for listening.